Need to create a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. We target Angular 6 and the recent versions with much of the curriculum is suitable back to Angular 2. Or go beyond the three-day class with a consultation or project launch with Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. We can assist your team or launch your project with advanced Angular topics including scalability, data flow, state management, full stack product design, and more. Contact us for a private class at your location or buy a ticket for public classes in various cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Adventures in Angular podcast. This week on our panel, we have Shai Resnick. Yeah. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Neil Brown. Hi there. Now, we had you on Ruby Rogues a while back. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about learning the code and things like that. Um, do you want to just give a brief introduction and then we'll dive into our topic for today? Uh, yep. So I work as a research fellow at King's College London in the UK. Um, I work in computing education and I'm interested in how people learn to program and also making tools that, that make learning to program a bit more easily. Awesome. So we're not talking, strictly speaking, about Angular today. We're talking about learning to code or learning to code better. Yep, yeah, that's right. What? I thought it's about Angular. I'm leaving, Chuck. I know, right? <laughs> um, it, it's always interesting to dive in, though, and, and see, okay, you know, what makes people tick? What, you know, what things help people learn? What, you know, what things people can do, even at the expert level, to get better? Um, I'm, I'm a little curious, though, you know, from the standpoint of your research, um, and bringing new people into the industry. I mean, what kinds of things can we do to help new people pick up what we're doing more quickly? Yeah, so I think one thing uh, people, it's a useful tip that people forget is that if you're an expert, you tend to operate and program a bit differently to, to a novice. So you need to sort of be aware that a novice is going to operate differently. And you as an expert, if you're trying to train somebody up, you need to uh, approach things differently. So a lot of the time, experts, they've got a huge amount of knowledge memorized that they don't even necessarily realize they have. Um, and they tend to just apply it. So if you give an expert a simple programming problem, they just bang it out on the keyboard and they're done. Whereas a novice, they're going to have to like break it down into smaller steps and go a lot more slowly. And as an expert, you've got to be sort of ready for that and not rush them. Like, why can't you just solve this now? Like, realize that they're operating at a, a totally different level to you. And you're going to have to break the problem down into a lot smaller steps for them to be able to deal with it and kind of go through it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think it was in Pragmatic Thinking and Learning by Andy Hunt. He talks about different levels of expertise, you know, from uh, beginner all the way up to expert. And yeah, um, there are things that you just take for granted, things that almost become habits. And so you don't think about having to do those things where a novice really does. They really have to think about each step that they take as they do it. And so there are certain things you're going to take for granted that you just don't think about. And so um, one thing that I found is that I either have to go back and kind of step-by-step step break things down. And then even then, I usually need some kind of feedback, right? Okay, I, I, I don't get how to get from step A to step B or step C to step D. And yeah, the other thing is, is that um, I've also found that a lot of times 
if I go to a tutorial or something by somebody that's just a step or two ahead of me, a lot of times they'll talk about the things that they had to solve to figure it out much uh, in ways that are much more easy, easy for me to pick up than if it's done by an expert. Yeah. Yep. I, um, I, I stumbled into it by accident. Uh, so I, when I fir- did my first video ever, I had a joke and I wanted like someone to, to say it, but I didn't have any partners. So I invented this uh, cartoon character called Bonnie. So you could add like, you know, set up the joke. And, uh, uh, and, and later I used the same character as the one who asks the beginner's questions. So I will have an excuse to, you know, to answer them. Uh, and I, and, and only later I found out from people that it was really useful for them because he, Bonnie asks all the stuff they had in their mind, like, what is a component, you know, or like stuff that for people who are using Angular for like a lot of time, it's kind of obvious, but for people who are just getting into it, it's kind of like the obvious question to ask, you know, what is that? What is like depends injection? What is like, you know, this new term? So it's kind of by accident, but it turned out to be a useful, uh, <laughs> useful way, excuse to answer these questions. Yeah, and I think a lot of the time experts also forget how much knowledge they've got and, and just sort of skim over bits that they assume everybody knows, but then, uh, you know, they forget about it. Somebody goes off to, to, you know, tinker with CSS for the first time and they sort of see EM or something like that. You know, they, they don't know what it is or they don't know how to read the CSS rule structure. You know, what's the difference between greater than and just space mm-hmm. and the fact that maybe space is actually a sort of like hierarchical relationship, like... People just forget that once they've done CSS for a bit because it's just become second nature. And so all these little bits of knowledge that you can easily just gloss over. And if you're learning, it's really frustrating because if you don't know one key thing, you can often get really stuck um, sort of quite early on. And it can be a very frustrating process, I think, learning to program. Uh, CSS especially. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. So... When you're designing a course, then, I mean, do you just have to keep this stuff in mind or are there particular techniques or ideas that you can put into practice in order to make things more approachable? Yeah, so, so certainly this sort of um, breaking down is useful and trying to learn, get the hang of where your learners are. One, one tip that seems supported by the research is uh, doing live programming uh, when you're sort of teaching people especially this is in things like lectures but obviously also nowadays you know videos on the web and and that sort of thing Um, just being able to watch somebody as they're doing the process of programming is very useful for learning because you can see like what they're doing like the the steps they're taking to get to the goal whereas if you just give them the finished code and say this is what you know we need to do next then they can kind of get really overwhelmed by that so seeing the process seeing that people make mistakes along the way is very vital to sort of so they don't get knocked in terms of confidence if if they make their own mistakes they want to see you make mistakes and see what you do when you make the mistakes Uh, and that's actually really vital so when when learning i think so keep the mistakes yeah like a lot of people you know especially if you're live in person in front of a lecture theater or maybe you're doing live webcasts, they get really embarrassed when they, they make a mistake. But actually, it, it's really good to make a mistake because 
you can show people kind of what they're doing. And if you're embarrassed, it sends the wrong message to somebody who's learning because then when they make a mistake, they think, oh, I should be embarrassed. Like, just be confident. You know, you're a professional, you know what you're doing, but you've made a mistake. That's fine. Here's what you do to fix the mistake. Like, we all make mistakes when we're programming all the time, or certainly I do. Yeah, when I was doing the Teach Me to Cut It screencast series, um, I would leave my mistakes in unless... I mean, I would cut out the, okay, Googling this, looking at that, you know, so I would cut five, 10 minutes out of, you know, okay, I went and looked on Stack Overflow, you know, I'd come back. I went and looked on, looked on Google, found this on Stack Overflow, here's the answer. But I would leave the mistakes in and I got a ton of feedback from people saying that they really, really liked that because it showed them how I approach the issues, just like you pointed out. Interesting. It saves you money in editing as well. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just edit out the dead air, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if they watched me, whether and all they would see was mistakes and there wouldn't be anything where I actually accomplished anything. <laughs> there you go. Extra learning on Ward's part. That That's what that boils down to. Hey, Ward. How are you? Hi there. <laughs> so, are, are we actually started or are we prepping? Yeah, we're, we're, we've already started. Oh, hi, everybody. <laughs> Let's leave these mistakes in, shall we? <laughs> exactly. That was what I was waiting for. <laughs> so one thing we were talking about before the, the episode started, and this is something that uh, kind of got brought up by something that Shai asked. And I don't remember exactly how we got to it. But we were talking about um, computer science degrees versus people who are self-taught or go through a boot camp or something like that. Um, do those learning processes change? Are there different people that are kind of geared toward one or the other? Do you need a CS degree? I mean, how does this all come into it, right? Because people learn different ways. Yeah, so so my personal opinion, do not speak for my employer, um, is that a lot of the value in degrees and formal education is actually just forcing you to turn up and like putting the structures in place that really kind of get you to stick with it. Like, you know, self-taught works very well for some people who are self-motivated, but there are a bunch more people that could learn it. But like, you know, if you're trying to learn it in your spare time alongside another job as part of a transition, it can be a really tough kind of process. And so to some extent, and especially kind of at the age people go to university, I think there's an element of just making sure that they're there, giving them like a learning community where they can support each other even if actually sometimes the content that you give in a lecture is not necessarily that different than a con- the content you'd see in an online tutorial or like a webcast um, or something along those lines. Um, so I, I think that speaks to sort of the, the different types of people who may need different kinds of ways to, to get into programming. Along those lines, do you see any threat to like, you know, uh, because what you said, I see people also transitioning uh, like online educators and transitioning into this model of like building a community around the videos or the courses and also like adding exercises and like one-on-one or questions and answers like typical stuff you'll get you know in in like a normal study studying environment although it's online and not offline so you don't see you know maybe the people as much as you would see. So you don't have this social, you know, let's party aspect of uh, college. Uh, but do you see, I don't know, maybe... Uh, no, that, I think they, they've got better at that. I think the very first generation of kind of online education was just like, here's a bunch of videos 
mm-hmm. and a couple of exercises for you to do by yourself. And that just didn't really pan out. And as you say, the, the community aspects definitely help a lot, I think, in, in trying to get people to stick with it, giving them support networks um, when they're stuck. So I think that has been a, a crucial component for them to add. Yeah. So when you said you said you, you researched the topic of, of education, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, about programming education. Programming education. So the first tip was uh, the curse of knowledge, right? Like if you're an expert, you have the curse of knowledge. So you don't know maybe sometimes to uh, start from the beginning, right? So it's obvious to you. So that's, yeah. that was one thing we could um, uh, improve or add to our uh, teaching. Uh, what else? What else have you found in your research? Um, yeah, so one thing that comes is from sort of the general education research, and this goes back to the question about boot camps, is um, obviously you need a lot of practice. Like whichever way you're going to come into programming, you do need a lot of practice, kind of different things to to get to grips with it. Um, and one thing that they found is that it helps if the practice is spaced. So very intensive courses where you maybe do nine till five, Monday to Friday, with kind of no gaps. Like if you took all the teaching from a university that spread out over a term and condensed it, it actually is less effective. You do need the gaps between whether you're that sort of online, you're spacing it out more, whether that's boot camps where you go away and come back or whatever. It, it is more effective because the brain kind of um, takes time basically for the, for the knowledge to sink in and you need to refresh it over time so that you don't just do it once and then it's gone. You've got to recircle, you know, sort of come back to it time and time again with spacing in between. And, and that's what produces the most effective learning. Interesting. Yeah. So let's say that I'm taking an online course then. And, and I'm assuming this is true for both um, novices and for experts, right? You need to yeah. repeat and you need to space it out. So should I do maybe a video each day or you know, ha- how much spacing should I, I take? Or should I get really intense one day and then take the next day off? Yeah, it seems to be sort of, we're measuring in days here, I think, so that um, sort of do a bit and then you need a couple of days for it to sink in and then um, kind of, you know, do a chunk more. Obviously, you can be doing little bits of of practice, you know, here and there, but it really does seem to be in the order of days that you space it out. And again, you've got to, don't just assume that because you covered something once, you remember it. I mean, I'm sure we've all been there crammed for an exam the night before done really well on the exam the next day. And if you ask two weeks later, like you can't remember, you know, half of what you've managed to cram in. Whereas if you came back to it in that time and sort of kept revising over a longer period of time, you'd remember it a lot better. And obviously if you put it into practice as well, um, then you'll remember it better. Just describe my whole high school experience. I don't remember (laughs) anything, anything. I was going to say, I've never crammed for an exam and then forgot everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so i'm sorry did i trail off there uh, anyway. but you know this actually ties into something i find from uh corporate requests for training i can't tell you I, I i don't even get it sometimes why they'll ask me to come in and teach some set of developers some technology like angular or something like that and then i know they're not going to write any angular apps in the next couple of weeks or months <laughs> it's like why why what was the What's the point? Um, they like you, or they can feel yeah, good. that's true. And if I'm hired for entertainment, um, I'm I'm cool for that. You know, I'm down with that. <laughs> look, boss, look how forward thinking we are. We did a course on Angular. 
<laughs> yeah, right. And, and what it means is that these courses, you know, if you're sort of sent off for two days intensive training on X and you don't come back and then get into X, then, it, yeah, it is pretty much wasted. You know, one-off courses, they're just not that effective, really. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about, okay, so space, you, you need a practice, you need to be it to be spaced. So not like everything in one uh, sit down. Uh, is there like a, an amount of time, which is, which is uh, like more, more, more useful or, you know, um, for lessons or for courses or something like that along like the time, the duration? Um, yeah, I don't think there's a strict rule. I mean, obviously there's things like how long your attention span can last. Um, and if it's one activity, especially if it's very passive, like lectures, it's, it's pretty limited. I think it's generally thought to be under an hour. Um, whereas, uh, what? if you're doing something, Sorry, I was dis distracted. <laughs> <laughs> whereas if you're doing something active or you mix it up, you know, you split between activities, you do a bit of sort of lecturing, bit of activity, um, yeah, you know, I mean, people have this sense anyway. In your work day, generally, if you try to do one sort of fairly coherent task for like eight hours straight without getting up, you're not going to manage it. Your mind's going to wander. You're going to, mm -hmm. you know, need to take breaks. And it's, it's the same for learning, essentially. Like, you know, don't force yourself to sit down for hours on end. It's not going to be that effective. You need to do yeah. sort of little bits, I think. And especially these days, we, we, you have like 400 Chrome tabs open <laughs> and, and 40 of them is Facebook and different like, you know, profiles. And uh, you keep like jumping from Twitter to Facebook to like uh, Netflix to your YouTube lecture about end-to-end um, -end testing and then jumping to the latest JavaScript technology and then jumping into the like... This is like the normal reality today. So to ask someone to get like be focused for more than I don't know a few minutes, uh, it's it's a it's a very hard <laughs> thing to ask unless it's very interesting or funny or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's the thing, right? The universities they tend to be testing the upper ends of how long you can concentrate for. Whereas <laughs> if you're doing it at your own machine at home, you're testing like the lower end of how long can I concentrate for before yeah. I get distracted by like flicking to the news or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So one thing that I'm curious about is, um, do novices learn different from experts or, you know, people in the middle, maybe do they learn different from experts? Yeah. So the same brain. Yeah. Well, one way to think about it is, um, you know, this sort of thing about working memory that you can only hold kind of five items in working memory at any one time um, seems to be roughly accurate. But the what an item is, is actually the very interesting part. So when you're a novice and everything is overwhelming and you haven't learned anything yet, your item size is, is very small. So oh, yeah. I often use sort of like reading as an example. So if you're trying to teach a young child to read, like their item might be a letter, like they're struggling to recognize the shape of each letter and what that means. And then they maybe have to sound it out loud to kind of get the hang of it. And so for them putting together even one word is like, you know, a real struggle. Whereas obviously you and I were reading, we recognize entire words in one go and we just skim along sentences. And, you know, not only can we read, we can skim read so we can gloss over the bits that aren't really necessary because we're very expert readers. And the same applies for programming. At the beginning, you're like, oh, what does if mean? Like, you know, okay, what's like, 
you know, what are these different sort of data types or what, what's that function do? Um, and as an expert, you just sort of look at it like, oh, yeah, that's just a guard to check that, like, I've initialized the toolkit correctly. And so your item size is a hell of a lot bigger. So as an expert, you can read over code uh, a lot sort of more easily. Again, you can skim code, whereas a novice, they're going to have to take in each line to work out what's going on. So in a sense, novices and experts work in, in the same way, like you say, because it's the same brain. The difference is the chunk size. The novices are dealing at a very low level. The experts are up at a high level, but they still struggle if you then prevent an expert with a really advanced task. They're still going to struggle to learn. It's just that their chunk size is, is so much bigger. Right. That makes sense. And, uh, you know, you mentioned practice. Is is that how... I remember going to conferences and a lot of the talks were basically introduction to this thing or that thing. You know, here's a new technology and here's how you get started with it. You know, and occasionally there'd be like, here's some, you know, deep in the weeds technique on how to do something, you know, something you can cover in an hour. Um, but generally, there, there wasn't a whole lot in the middle, right? So there's this fine grain detail and then there's this, um, you know, high level intro. And people would talk about, okay, well, I'm kind of in the middle. So where's the content for me, right? Where's the content for me when I'm, I'm, I'm practiced enough as a novice to be sort of a mid-level person, but I'm not an expert in all these things. Uh, you know, how, how do you get, you know, from that mid-level to that expert? You know, what, what kinds of things should you be looking at there? Yeah, I think that's a level that's often left behind. We, we see it even in education research. There's a hell of a lot of papers about, um, like first computing course, how that should be designed, how you should do that. And then there is a bunch of research on what do experts do? How do they do it? And like, there's not that much kind of like, you know, what does like third year university do? What does junior developers do? Like, how do you make it from sort of junior to senior? It's an area that's, that's very tricky. Um, and I think, as you said, it often also gets neglected in sort of course provision. I, I know that for us, when we do workshops, the thing is, if you advertise a novice workshop, like anyone can turn up. Whereas if you advertise an intermediate workshop, like they've got a, you've cut down your audience size like a lot, but you're not doing like pro tips, really valuable sessions that kind of would attract a lot of experts. And so I think there is a big gap generally for that sort of intermediate level instruction. Do you have any recommendations for people who are at that level? I think it's, it's like I said, it's sort of a similar process in a sense. You need to keep practicing. You, there's this idea of sort of flow that you want to try and be doing something that's just above where you are now to learn further. And if you extend that too far, then you're going to sort of, you know, you're going to fail if you try and understand an expert topic and you're, you're not ready for it yet. But if all you're ever doing is the same thing you've done so far, then it reinforces what you know, but it's not teaching you anything new. So it's just trying to ratchet it up, I think little bit by little bit so that you're always learning something new but but not overwhelming gotcha what's the um like the job of repetition does it play uh well with like uh how how much because i heard uh, a cool sentence or phrase about repetition uh, by tony robbins i think which is uh, repetition is the mother of skill so um but sometimes, you know, it can be like a, a very delicate balance between too, uh, too many times of repeating the same like point or too little, right? So yeah, do you have a I, recommendation there? 
Yeah, I think if, if you've reached the point where you've mastered it and all the examples just become like sort of, you know, click your fingers and you've done it, then you can move on. I think one thing that we're, we're beginning to find with, with memory research is that a lot of people have this concept of the mind that, okay, you're learning something, you're writing to memory, you know, in computing terms. Mm -hmm. And when you're sort of practicing it, you're reading from memory. But actually, the act of recalling things from memory seems to modify the memory. So it's, it's an active process, doing the repetition, you're actually reinforcing the memory as you recall it. And that's why it's important to, to circle back to older things, because it reinforces the memory. So that's the sort of the value of repetition is that you bring it up again and you actually strengthen the memory so that you'll tend to remember it for a longer period of time. And it's diminishing returns. So there'll come a point where you just, you just know it. Like, you know, I don't know, how do I write a function in JavaScript? Like, you know, if you export on JavaScript, you just know that there's no point in practicing it anymore. Um, but if you're a novice, then keep doing it. We'll, we'll keep refresh it in your memory. As I say, if you, if you space it, especially. Hmm. So a cool tip uh, is to to view like if people are viewing the the students as as like <laughs> classes with properties. Okay, so it's not really properties. It's like properties where when you keep assigning the same value, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So yeah, it's like those caches where you forget the least used item, and each time you read from it, you kind of bring it to the you know the top of the cache priority. That's that's sort of a seems to be a model of how the mind works. Hmm, nice. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash adventures. Really interesting. What do you think about story? What do we know about storytelling? I I don't think I, you know, I don't think I do enough of it in my talks. And yet every time I do tell a story that goes along, it seems to go better. And I know Shai is very big on storytelling whenever he explains anything. <laughs> Once upon a time, there were three components, the mommy component, the daddy. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. you're kidding, but I actually told that story. <laughs> I want to hear that story. <laughs> later <laughs> yeah so I, I think storytelling um obviously it can be very engaging you know just telling a story it's something that really kind of grabs the audience so from that point of view it's it's really good to, to suck people in i think we have to be careful of i guess is to what extent the story relates to the the concept or, or what you're trying to get across you know you can tell a story that's really interesting but is actually it's not going to teach them anything so they'll go away they'll remember the story but they won't remember the the content that you were trying to get across. And, and one interesting finding uh, from some research, because university lecturers are often judged on their teaching evaluations, uh, and that's sort of a hot topic in academia. Uh, and so people have done research which suggests that the amount that the students rate you, so how highly they, they rate you as a teacher, is almost completely unrelated to how much they learn from you. Um, and I think that's a, a really interesting result that applies also potentially to a lot of tech talks, that which ones you found really interesting and engaging isn't necessarily the ones that you actually learned anything from. Um, so it's quite an interesting topic. And I've got, I bet a lot of tech conferences probably rate their speakers on the basis of 
audience feedback when when actually it looks like they shouldn't if their aim is to to get people to learn stuff that's a good point yeah that's um and also that's a balance that uh i know people are like you know, uh, even telling stories or doing unusual stuff, I don't see it a lot in the conferences and I want to see more of that. And as someone who tries to do, uh, you know, things a little bit differently, I can tell you that there is a learning curve as well there to find the balance between a good story, like you said, and uh, something that relates to the actual material. And I heard again, that one of the best ways to learn is to connect something you already know to something you don't know. And by that you short, you shortcut the, you know, the circuit, right. Uh, uh, of your memory or something like that. Um, and, and that's why metaphors and stories work well, again, if they are tightly coupled, to the learning material, right? So that's that's an interesting point. Um, I think we're learning. We keep learning as uh, tech uh, speakers. You know, what's one thing point? that I find with that though is that it you have to have some level of shared context for that to work. I mean, otherwise, a lot of times I'm constrained somewhat for time in my talk and. You know, I don't have time to give a lot of context for a story. So if I can talk about something that I think most of my audience understands and tell a story related to that, that generally goes better. So I'm going to push back a little um, because the talk that that I'm that doesn't have the story that sort of feature, 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 and you know, this, here you know, I'm, I open with my slide that tells you about the five things you're, I'm going to tell you is one kind of talk, and some of those masquerade as top 10 things you should know. Whenever I see one of those, it's like, well, the person had no idea how they were going to make it cohere. So they just picked 10 things because they knew they could do them in the time allotted. And let's just let her rip and give you the top 10. And, and you know, those are fun sessions often. You know, like the, you know, the top 10 ways to use your browser or something like that. Uh, I don't know that's learning. Whereas um, when, I, when somebody is really motivating the move through the, the talk, getting the audience together to say, we're on a journey together, mm -hmm. where we're going to accomplish something that you recognize is something you would want to do. At least I personally find that it's hard to, to structure, to create that story. But when I, when I see it done and whenever I'm lucky enough to get it right myself, it seems to root people. And I wonder if there's any research that backs that up or I'm just, or I'm just making this up and it doesn't actually, you know, it's a fantasy. Yeah, I think that there's definitely an element of craft here that, you know, research doesn't provide all answers. It tends, it tells us what tends to be effective. And so, as you say, there can probably be really good 10 tips talks. There can be really good sort of storytelling talks that can be bad on both fronts. I, I think an interesting experiment would be rather than, you know, often when I go to a talk, I sit there and I'm kind of picking like the speaker apart, you know, what did they do wrong? Like what's confusing here? That bit was awkward because I want to try and improve, you know, my own talks. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> and I think what would be really interesting is for, for each conference you go to, like maybe two weeks afterwards to go back, find the sessions that you went to at a particular tech conference and think, what do I remember from each of those sessions? Because that will really help you to kind of evaluate it and to see, okay, I went to a 10 tips one. I bet you probably remember one tip 
like out of the 10, you know, really. Um, and then to think, okay, I went to like this storytelling one, you know, did I remember more or not? And, and sort of judge it that way. It might be an interesting activity. Yeah. And, and, and to tie it back to, to what Chuck said about like not having a lot of time, uh, we actually had this dilemma in the late, the last NGConf, uh, me and Pete and Mike, uh, because we had only 20 minutes and we needed to, w <laughs> to give a talk about RxJS. Um, and we thought about like, uh, teaching about a bunch of like operators and stuff like that. And then we just decided to go with one operator. And, and at first we were like, ah, no way we will be done with it in five minutes. And then we have like 15 minutes to stare at the audience, you know, it's mm -hmm. always that illusion. Right. But it took, it, it actually, we could have done it even in 30 minutes, but we had to cut down stuff because we, when you go deep, when you zoom in into the topic, there's so much. And especially if you try to explain a complicated topic, such as a switch map, for example, um, it's, it doesn't like the, the normal way of hear it. Well, uh, hear what it, it's doing. Not, it's not working for most people, especially if they're just getting into it, especially if they tried it and they remembered it for like two days and then they forgot what, because it's complicated. I need all the context. So maybe reducing the, so my point is maybe reducing, um, the, context or the topic to one single thing, then it will allow you to build a story around it, to have the time to build the context you need in order to tell that story and to really make sure that people come out uh, from this talk with a clear understanding of this simple topic. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one thing that comes to mind where you don't have to you know, just like leave the whole metaphor and story aside. You can just like, you know, there's other ways to still keep your, uh, I don't know, story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think stories are helpful because it stories are essentially a chain of associations. And so it helps people stick it in their head. And if you, if you get some emotional response from me, I remember it better in those cases too. So... I see the value. It's just that sometimes I find the story I want to tell requires more of me than I have time for. And so I have to either figure out how to cut it down or figure out some other way to express the idea. Yeah. So, so, so Neil, where are you taking all this stuff? I mean, um, I, I perhaps as listeners know, I dropped in a little late. But um, what about this area motivates you? What are you trying to do with it? Yeah, so it's one thing we're interested in is um, trying to make uh, tools that make programming sort of uh, easier for people. And I remember when I, I came on the Ruby Rogues podcast before, we had a bit of a discussion about IDEs because it seems that <laughs> different programming communities have quite different opinions on, on IDEs. So I'm primarily a Java programmer, and I think it's fair to say in Java lands, IDE use is, is very high, whereas... Um, I don't know. I have a feeling that probably in Angular lands very low. Um, you, know, you guys can can fill me in on that. Um, no, very high. 
Very high. Very high. Yeah. Oh, it is very high. Okay. Yeah. So, so you know, what we're doing is trying to design IDEs that that make programming more approachable to people. And generally, we try and apply these tips by cutting down the the context that novices don't need to see by sort of focusing in on on what they need to know. Uh, and we also do some data analytics. So we look at what people are doing when they're learning to program, um, and try not to despair horribly. Uh, as we see the frustrations that they encounter when we sort of uh, look at programming sessions and things like that. But, that, okay, that's an interesting point because there's there's this, this thing that I'm noticing like on myself and like on students, in students and in colleagues where when people miss the, they don't have the knowledge of the underlying layer of what they are trying to do. So let's say you started learning Angular, but you don't know JavaScript yet, as as well as you should know. Uh, so every time you get into this point of like this bug or something like that, you just like give up because you say it's voodoo, right? I don't know. It's magic. I don't know what's happening. Um, so in terms of tools, tooling helps you a lot when you know the underlying layer and you know how much work is it um and then you have like this shortcut or schematics or just you know like in angular land or just this button that you want to create your you know new component and you want the test with it and you want all the files that it needs and all that stuff uh so it make it much easier than to do it by hand but when you but but again when, when like i see just an example from Angular World, um, when you generate a new component, you get a spec, like an automatic spec. And it's not like the template is it, uh, most of the time uh, useless uh, because you need to actually write. But I see people like, um, I actually saw that people are generating this spec, they're running it, uh, and they say, oh, okay, I have, a, I have a test. Okay, it's running, you know without understanding that it's just like a template and also written a bit like, you know, uh, not, not that uh, optimized to, I don't know, um, to the current way of, of doing stuff. And um, so that's an interesting topic, like tooling, should you know the underlying layer? Sh like, should, should you rely on you know, just the magic, <laughs> you know, yeah. what, what are your, what is your opinion on that? Yeah. So it relates to this concept that we have called notional machines. And like, sometimes you get pushback from people when you're trying to teach programming. If you try and teach a high level language, especially some older people, they'll say things like, oh no, you've got to know assembly before you can understand kind of, you know, all the levels above it. So if you don't understand what the process is doing, you can't understand like the, the higher levels. Um, and I, I don't think our analogy just to give some context would be, yeah, you have to understand JavaScript to understand TypeScript and you have to understand TypeScript to understand the way that Angular is built so that you can use Angular. Yeah. And, and it relates to the computer science concept of abstraction. So you need to pick an abstraction where level where you can kind of understand that abstraction and the things built on top of it, but you don't need to understand what's beneath it, that it's well-contained. So if you learn JavaScript and you understand the semantics of JavaScript, you don't need to know how Google's V8 engine or whatever, you know, is actually implementing JavaScript. You just trust that it implements the semantics and the semantics give you a level of abstraction to work on. And it seems that perhaps, you know, with some of the, like you say, with the Angular stuff, 
that it, it's not a complete abstraction across JavaScript. So you still need to actually, you know, understand some of the JavaScript bits. So it's kind of what layer you can pick where you can say, okay, beneath this, you don't need to know it. And above this layer, you do need to know it. And ideally, we keep moving that higher and higher over time, I think. But it really depends, especially with things like frameworks, you know, to what extent it still exposes some of the details of what's beneath and to what extent it's more like a domain-specific language where it's completely hidden, kind of what's gone on underneath. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Like how, how much is it there? And, and you're right, it's, it's not enough just to know the framework right you need to know because you have a lot of holes uh in the in between that you need to fill with typescript or with javascript you know with plain uh, so it's not a layer it's more like a mesh of three layers together or something like that yeah so are there different people that learn better than other people or i the the other way i see it is i talk to people and they basically say oh i could never learn to do what you do Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, yes, you could, but yeah. Uh, are some people more inclined or better inclined to stuff than others? Yeah. So there's certainly there's some level of sort of innate um, suitability. But one thing that's interesting is people have researched like long and hard to try and predict people's suitability ahead of time. Because especially, you know, things like universities get interested because if you can tell who's going to succeed and who's going to find it really difficult and drop out, it's useful to know that ahead of time rather than later on when they've spent a lot of money on the course. Um, but none of the research has ever turned up any strong factors in ability to program. So they've looked at gender, they've looked at um, you know, all sorts of different factors. Is it, if you like maths, if you're good at maths, are you better at programming? You know, all, all these sort of different things. And they've never really found a very strong association. There's maybe a, a low association with sort of general uh, intelligence, but that's true for pretty much any kind of professional skill. So it's not programming isn't special in that regard. So it really does seem that we can't predict who can program. Different people will take to it um, better than others. Um, but yeah, potentially, basically, anyone should give it a go. And, and you you won't know ahead of time whether you, you're going to be successful or not. I have an interesting story about that. Um, I have a friend who was a video editor um, for years, years and years. And I at some point, like, I don't know, 12 years ago or something like that, I tried to teach him um, how to program. And he tried, it was in the Flash days, okay? And I tried to teach him Flex. And he was like, nah, that's not for me. I'm not good at math. I don't, I'm not good at, you know, tried a little bit of Java. He was like so frustrated that he, he, he doesn't know that. Um, and he also like, he he wasn't good at math at school and stuff like that. So, and I kept telling him, dude, it has nothing to do with being good at like complicated math. It's just like, you know, we just need to remember some words and the focus should be on the creation. You see what it's like sculpturing, right? You see what, what is the final result and how, and you need to get there somehow. So you need to learn the syntax to, in order to know how to get there. Um, so after, okay. So he dropped that. Uh, and after a few years, he again developed this like uh, curiosity about it. And he told me again and, and told him, Hey, why don't you start with, you know, JavaScript? Okay. It's, it's easier. 
there's much less to know. Uh, and, and just like you will see the result instantly. Okay. Uh, on your browser. So it will be an easy leap in. So we started that, but this time it actually came from, so he started like tinkering with, with JavaScript, but in his job uh, as a video editor, he had this repetitive task to do. He needed to do this task and it became so boring for him. So he, he, while learning JavaScript, he learned that there, there's a way to program Adobe tools with the, uh, I think, Extend script, which is a flavor of JavaScript for Adobe. So he learned how to do that just from, you know, blogs and stuff. Um, and he actually developed a tool that can analyze the sound, the audio by the beat and cut the video. So he like, it was like a fashion clip. So it's, it was, you know, like music videos and stuff like that. So he needed to cut on the beat to the next clip. So he actually did this complicated super complicated stuff. If you think about it, like analyzing the waveform, uh, figuring where's the, where are the beats, cutting the video, all that stuff by having a goal, having like a, a motivation for not doing that repetitive stuff. Okay. Over and over and over again, but letting the computer do it for you. So now uh, having like building the confidence on that, he started like selling this as a plugin and then he got a job as a software, uh, engineer, uh, software uh, engineer and, um, started like working. So for the past few years, he's been working and, and getting very good feedback. And, and again, he learned from online, you know, not having a degree in it and all that stuff, but just having that motivation. And like, you know, losing the misconceptions of, I need to be an, uh, you know, a uh, math expert in order to, you know, program a JavaScript, uh, that, that, that helped him. So that's a success story, uh, which didn't start as one, right? So just an anecdote. Yeah, I find the same if I try and learn a new language. I can never sit down and just learn a new language by firing up the tutorial and uh, playing with it. I need to actually have a project that I'm going to do in it. And, and only then can I actually sort of get to grips with it and, and do it that way. I need something that's pulling me through to learn all the bits I need rather than just abstractly setting off like, you know, yeah, yeah, today I'm going to learn, uh, you know, some, some new language or whatever, Rust or something. Yeah, exactly. Like me. It's very like persistent, all these sort of things like, oh, you, you must be good at maths to be good at programming. You, programming is like a foreign language. Therefore, if you've got good language skills, you know, you'll, you'll do well that way. Um, but it seems that you know, there's, there's just as much connection to art or music as there is to, to languages or, or maths with programming. It's just it's its own thing. Um, and uh, yeah, it seems to be quite separate in terms of whether you're, whether you're good at it or not. Well, I think that's the thing that's interesting, right? Is that um, when you really look at what, you know, what is good code or what is an elegant or good solution to a problem with code, you know, all of these things go into what good code is. Is it readable? You know, does, is it expressive? And all of those are different parts of the same thing. And that's, that's kind of what you're talking about, Neil, there is, um, you know, 
So can I, you know, sort of mathematically prove my solution? Well, that, you know, that's the mathematical skills. Is it expressive is more of the artistic uh, skills, you know, is it an elegant solution in, in that, you know, again, comes back around to, you know, some of the artistic and maybe a little bit of the technical um, skills. And so it's, it's really interesting to me too, you know, I've heard people talk about, you know, different genders or different um, ra racial backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds. And what I find is that, you know, if you can put any kind of provable difference between these groups into play, what it really means is that they're going to write better code in a particular way and not necessarily that they're going to write better code overall than in any other group. I, I haven't seen anything that indicates anything to that degree. And so then it, it comes back to if you have people who have these diversity of background or approach or whatever, then you start to take advantage of the strengths of the different people uh, and where they come from, as opposed to, you know, necessarily worrying about, you know, what's fair. It, it's not just fair, it's advantageous to have people who have those different skill sets. Yeah, and like you say, the, the ability seems to be spread amongst all kinds of backgrounds, and, and you can then start to pick up, you can start to see some of the selection effects that some of the sort of lower end skills from some backgrounds are missing because like they've been forced out more easily uh, than other backgrounds so that you, um, yeah, you can see sort of, oh, you know, they must have dropped out of the sort of pipeline earlier due to other pressures because actually the people who are left are higher ability than the kind of um, sort of white male majority or whatever. And the reason for that is these, probably these selection effects uh, along the way that, that they felt less confident in it or that it's seen as a, a pursuit for certain backgrounds. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end of our hour. Is there anything that you're researching right now that you think is of particular interest to people who are either trying to teach better or learn better? Um, yeah, so like I say, what our recent projects, um, we're, we're collecting a lot of data traces from people who are learning to program. Um, and so we have this sort of large body of data that we're looking into to try and work out um, like how people learn and, and the things they struggle with. And like I say, in general, we just find that the people's progress and their baseline is a lot below sort of what you think because the interesting thing about our data is it records people when they're out of the class. So when they're just at home programming or whatever, you can see their, what syntax error they get stuck on or whatever. And they, they just get stuck on very small things for very, very long amounts of time. The, the real struggle with programming is that um, one mistake just can completely halt your progress um, forever, you know, until you fix it. You don't have to be a learner to have that one, <laughs> as I, I can attest. I have beaten that. This is the you bring. I mean, here's the thing, Neil. Um, uh, you're just spark, setting up sparks for me. Because are you testing people who are learning alone or are they learning with others? Because the, the amazing thing I found is I, I just got myself totally fried lost, lost, lost. This happens all the time. As soon as I bring somebody else into the room, they don't even have to be great. They don't have to know my subject. But as soon as they're in the room, magic happens. And I'm out of the woods. And I, you know, maybe I fixed it myself or something like that. Um, and I got to believe I'm not alone. Yeah, you know, like the rubber duck debugging technique that if you just try and explain it to like a rubber duck or your cat, yep. that you, yep. you solve it. Yeah. yeah um, and when a rubber duck isn't available, I call shy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's yeah. funny is I've gone downstairs and looked at my wife and said, I've got this problem and I just need to talk it through with, hang on. And then I run back upstairs and solve it. 
<laughs> I find sometimes I I start typing out an email to somebody I think will help or a Stack Overflow question, and like two thirds of the way through, I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> As I try to explain it, like in the email, I'm like, no way, but what, that's obvious now. You know, you just flip that switch. Right, but but so let's generalize this back though. To when you're collecting your research, are you collecting on individuals who are trying to to do this on their own? You know, this is also the argument for pair programming, by the way. There are a lot of businesses say, we can't afford two people who are working on the same thing. Yeah, well, you can't afford to have somebody sitting there, you know, uh, dreaming up uh, bad ideas like I do. You need some, you need to check on that. And I, I sense that, I don't know, what's, what's the research on learning in teams as opposed to learning alone? Yeah, there's definitely they found effects, positive effects for pair programming in in learning settings and in expert settings. So it, it does seem to have advantages. I'm not quite sure how much data there is um, to sort of how, how the strength of evidence is on those counts, but I'm pretty sure they've they've tended to find positive effects of that. I don't know if anyone's researched sort of mob programming or any of the kind of you know the other styles of programming, but they've definitely looked at pair programming. Well, I'd, I'd love to have links to some of that. I, yeah, mob programming doesn't strike me as is is appealing um, because it's a mob, and I'm not much on mobs. But but two and three, um, I, you know, again, we're all talking our personal thing, and we're all looking for the data. And I, I just, if you've got links to to things that can demonstrate the benefit of, of pair programming, that would be really interesting, particularly for my kind of clients. Yeah, and I have a feeling that the data on novices is that it, it works best if they're similar skill levels, that if you've got a great skill disparity, um, it's it's not as effective. But I can, yeah, I can try and look that up uh, to see oh, what it says that exactly. Makes, that makes total sense because then the dominant one just is like lording it over the other and nobody learns anything. So, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you, you've sort of got social effects, I think, because often they're studied at universities. And I mean, uh, if you've sort of been through group projects in schools or universities, you know, it, it's a total different kettle of fish to group projects in a in a company, you know, in terms of people not pulling their weight or not being at all interested. Like, it's quite a different dynamic, I think. So I think it, it really does work differently in, in, in the different contexts. Where, where can people check out what you're uh, doing these days? Um, yeah, I can give you some some links afterwards to a couple of our all our papers are, are open access, um, so I can give you some links to to things for people to to check out and blog posts and things like that. Sounds good. Yeah, just put them in the chat and we'll get them in the show notes. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and do picks. Do you run your own freelance business, or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side? Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat 
and enter dev chat in the how did you hear about us section. Shai, do you want to do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have two. Uh, I'm to pick uh, my mother. She's awesome. Uh, but other than that, I have two. One is a tool that it's like an un- antivirus for uh, your NPM packages. And there were a lot of um, security issues lately. Um, and we did a meetup about JavaScript security. Uh, and how not to be hacked at uh, JavaScript Israel. Um, and there were like mind, mind blowing, uh, lectures. Too bad they are in Hebrew, but, um, out of that, one of the, one of the speakers was the founder of a cool, uh, service tool called Sneak with a Y. So S N Y K dot IO. So, and it, uh, like, it helps you uh, use open source and stay secure. So it's a cool tool. I will uh, put a link to it. And um, my other pick is a non-technical one, which is the um, Netflix uh, TV series about OJ Simpson, which I started to uh, watching. And uh, it's very interesting. I didn't think it will catch me, but he did. So, uh, I'm hooked now and, uh, it's very interesting. So I'm recommending that. And those are my picks. So I have two thoughts on your picks. Number one, SNCC is in my, I, I, I agree. And it's in my scripting. Um, so thumbs up for that. And the other is that the O.J. Simpson thing, it's one of those historical events that if you ask American anyone, everybody knows where they where they were and what they were doing when OJ was riding in the Bronco down down the highway in LA. Um, It's like the Kennedy assassination. Well, for those of us old enough to have lived through that, you know, this landmark events and that is one of them. So I don't know what an Israeli thinks about the OJ Simpson thing, but it certainly is a touchstone here in America. Yeah. All right. Ward, what are your picks? I've said everything I'm going to say on the tip front. Uh, I'm just picking back off of anything anybody else says. <laughs> cool. Cheater. <laughs> All right. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So um, I may or may not have mentioned at the top of the show, but uh, I have a video course that I've been working on for a while. And I've kind of been working on it off and on. Um, I was going to release it back in like April. And then my dad passed away and I had a whole bunch of other things kind of hit all at once. Anyway, I'm, I'm back at it. I went to Podcast Movement last week and I was kind of inspired by some of the things around writing an ebook. And then that, you know, I'm like, well, if I'm going to do the ebook, I may as well finish this course and do an ebook on the topic of the course. So if you're out there looking for a job and you're not quite sure where to start, or if you're not getting called in for interviews or things like that, um, I'm putting a book together and a video course together that will walk you through a process that will help you identify the job that you want. It will walk you through the process of updating your resume and building a portfolio that will attract people. And it will also help you figure out what the employers want so that you can go in and put your best foot forward. Um, I've coached a bunch of people in finding jobs. Uh, Most people find a job within two months. Um, I've had some people find a job within two weeks just by tweaking a couple things they were doing. Um, and so all of that stuff's going to be in this ebook. 
I'm doing a pre-launch on it. So I'm going to release it on Labor Day. If you're not in the US, that's the first Monday in September. Um, but uh, if you want to pre-order it and you'll get you know, copies of the book and the videos as I release them, um, if you pre-order it, then you can do that by going to getacoderjob.com. Um, and that'll take you to the right page on devchat.tv. You can also find it on devchat.tv um, or if you go to adventuresinangular.com, if that's easier for you to remember. Uh, just click on the store link and then you'll see the course and the book there. And uh, they're currently available for 50% off. Now, there is a chance that this episode will go live after Labor Day. We're ahead on a few of the podcasts and I haven't looked at the release schedule. If this episode goes live after Labor Day, then I will put um, a coupon code up, Angular, and it'll be good for a week. And you can use that to get the 50% off because I do want to make it available for folks. Um, but if if it comes out before then, then you can just get it then. But yeah, that that's one thing that I'm working on. And then um, another pick that I have, and uh, Ward might comment on this one. I don't know. Um, my wife grew up watching and listening to music from musicals. Um, her grandmother was really, really into them. And she was watching a special on Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, which on its own was awesome, by the way. Um, but we were talking and I asked her what one of those songs was from and she said South Pacific and I mentioned that I had never seen it you know I, I've only been on this earth for 38 and a half years um, but I had never seen South Pacific so, um, so there's still time there's still time Chuck for you to catch South Pacific yeah so she rented it on iTunes and right out of my hair that's right yeah there ain't nothing like a dame anyway so she rented it on iTunes Ray Walston the guy from My Favorite Martian you remember My Favorite Martian no, no? No. Oh my God. That was one of the great TV shows was the, nope. all right, never mind. I'm really dating myself. Forget it. Keep going, Chuck. That's <laughs> all good. Um, but yeah, so we watched it. It was, it was a fun movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, so if you're looking for something maybe a little bit different from what they put on the big screen these days, uh, definitely go check that out. Um, fun show. Uh, Neil, do you have some picks for us? Uh, yeah, so my pick is, it's also a Netflix series. Um, it's Last Chance You. Uh, so if you don't know it, it's uh, a documentary about sort of junior colleges in America. And like the first two thirds of each episode is like, so sort of looking at the students and their struggles to kind of get through college and like looking at their backgrounds and all the different places they've come from. Um, but it's all about college football teams. So the last third of every episode is like really high quality sports highlights of these junior college American football games. And it's just this weird mix of sort of like touching documentary, like American rural life, American education system in the college and sports. Uh, and I just, I'm really enjoying it at the moment. I'm watching the third series, which has just come out. Um, and yeah, it's just great. It's, it's like the show I never knew I wanted, um, but it's, uh, I'm really into it. Very cool. And also, I can never find anyone who's watched it. I found one guy this week uh, in the UK who had actually seen it, and nobody else has ever seen it. I go to conferences, I talk to Americans there. They've never seen it. No one's ever seen it. So, so people should start watching it. It's really good. When I see you, Neil, I'll be able to tell you I watched it. I just pulled it down. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you for coming, Neil. That's right. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I think the episodes where we discuss maybe things that aren't necessarily directly Angular related 
But at the same time, I mean, this is something that I know a lot of people struggle with is how do I learn better? How do I teach better? And so I think there's a lot here. And hopefully folks will go check out your research and see what other things they can glean about the way that we learn to code. Thanks so much, Neil. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, one of the papers I'll put the links to is uh, 10 tips. We've already talked about 10 tips things, 10 quick tips for teaching programming. So that summarizes <laughs> some of the stuff we've uh, we've talked about. I kept quiet about that one earlier. <laughs> nice. Ah, nice. All righty. Well, thanks again. That was fun. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.